The Recipes for Life podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being, as well as expanded consciousness. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed the health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. Dr. Kelly Brogan is a Manhattan-based holistic woman's health psychiatrist, author of the New York Times best-selling book, a Mind of Your Own, and co-editor of the landmark textbook Integrative Therapies for Depression. She completed her psychiatric training and fellowship at NYU Medical Center after graduating from Cornell University Medical College and has a BS from MIT in Systems Neuroscience. She is board certified in psychiatry, psychosomatic medicine, and integrative holistic medicine, and is specialized in a root cause resolution approach to psychiatric syndromes and symptoms. She is a medical director for Fearless Parent and a founding member of Health Freedom Action. She is a certified KRI Kundalini Yoga teacher and also a mother of two. To find out more about Kelly Brogan, visit kellybroganmd.com. That's K-E-L-L-Y-B-R-O-G-A-N-M-D.com. And to check out her book, A Mind of Your Own, you won't be disappointed. Dr. Kelly Brogan, thank you so much for being a part of our podcast, Recipes for Life. And I do want to say that uh, your book, A Mind of Your Own, is one of the uh, the most profound books that I've had the pleasure of reading and also for uh, sharing with my audience. And uh, everybody that reads it absolutely falls in love with the words that you contained in there. So uh, thank you for that. And uh, so cool to have you on the podcast. Total pleasure to be here. And thank you for that. Thank you for that introduction. So uh, let's talk about what type of doctor you are, just for the people that haven't heard of you before, and uh, what gets you up in the morning to do the work that you do. So it's an important, I guess, detail about my history, although it's not incredibly uh, interesting, that I am a totally conventionally trained psychiatrist. And the reason that it's important is simply to contextualize the conclusions that I've come to, which honestly are not original ideas. They aren't original conclusions. And, you know, if you survey 
any of the modern day indigenous populations that have lived in robust health for millennia, you'd find very similar conclusions. And if you speak to naturopaths or acupuncturists or chiropractors or energy healers, they also would echo many of the conclusions that I have come to. It's just that I have been robustly on the other side of this conversation and was for the better part of my training, um, you know, I was a neuroscience major in college and then went on to, you know, sort of pursue this notion that we have cracked the code of human behavior. And when things go wrong, we just need to provide the ready solution in the form of a pharmaceutical product. Um, I actually went on, believe it or not, to specialize in providing, you know, the option for medication to pregnant and breastfeeding women. And so it really took a lot of, of personal experience and my own health crisis to awaken me to, you know, a broader version of, of reality and there being more to the story. So let's, let's actually delve into this. So um, you talk about depression a lot in your book. So can we get the def- definition of what depression is and is it a disease? Mm. It's a great place to start because What I find is that those of us who are interested in getting to the truth, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, um, it requires a lot of uncomfortable examination of assumptions and dogma. (laughs) And so what I found pretty early on in my perusal of actually the scientific literature is that something I had assumed and been encouraged to assume didn't have a lot of evidence behind it. And that assumption is that depression, and we'll talk about depression, but you can really slot in any of the mental health diagnoses, you know, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, OCD, ADHD, you name it. And the assumption is that these are discrete disease entities. The important uh, sort of thing to bear in mind is that when it comes to psychiatric diagnosis, there are no objective tests. And a diagnosis does nothing to help you understand what is actually happening physiologically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually in that person's, you know, experience. It simply is a collected terminology to summarize a pattern of behavior, right? So it's not like when you say somebody has diabetes, Our understanding in the medical community is that there is a certain pattern, you know, being exhibited in their endocrine system. There's specific mechanisms at play when it comes to insulin and glucagon and glucose, et cetera. When you say that somebody has ADHD, there is no further elucidation of what's actually happening for that person on a, on a biochemical level, on a a psychological level, it's just simply stops there. And so when I began to reckon with this, I began to understand that we are using this term depression, the way we use the term fever, right? Mm -hmm. It's an observation that there is an effort on the part of the, let's say body, mind, spirit, there is an effort towards homeostasis. There is an effort towards rebalancing against a perceived stressor, but that's all that we know. Until we investigate further, we don't have any relevant personal information to explain what depression is to you. And that's when I began to explore all of these reversible drivers, because when I put down my prescription pad 
and I started to employ lifestyle medicine in my practice, I had, you know, full recoveries of unmedicated patients. And so I began to see that, oh, well, what I was calling depression was actually a B12 deficiency. You know, what I was calling depression was actually hypothyroidism undiagnosed, or it was actually a reaction to birth control or that acid blocking medication. And once these root cause drivers were addressed, then this, you know, nebulous psychiatric diagnosis totally dissolved. And so that's, you know, one important element is just to recognize that the term depression in no way meets disease criteria, despite the fact that we've been led to believe largely by vested interests that this is a genetic problem with a known chemical substrate that responds predictably to pharmaceutical products. Hmm. So in saying that, is there such a thing as an antidepressant medication? So the, the authority that I would defer to in this realm is Dr. Joanna Moncrief, who is a pioneering psychiatrist out of the UK. She actually was the first person I heard say that the term antidepressant should be abandoned because the term itself is misleading in that it suggests that we are resolving or fighting uh, a known chemical problem, right? And her argument, which I fully support, is that in fact, we are creating a new normal biochemical state when we expose people to medications. We are in no way resolving a known imbalance, in no way. All of the existing medical literature suggests that in fact, what we are doing is creating a new normal, right? And listen, you may like that new normal. It may be adaptive for you the way drinking alcohol might be adaptive for somebody for a period of time who has social anxiety. But we wouldn't go so far as to assume that that person has an alcohol imbalance or an alcohol deficiency. And so this idea, um, you know, that the, the terminology that we use itself may lead people to believe that there is a resolution of an underlying imbalance, that that needs to be addressed, you know, I would, I would totally agree. So in no way is that an appropriate term. So tell us about serotonin then and, and the role that that plays. So I've learned a lot about this um, primarily through, again, these sort of renegade thinkers and also researchers. There is a group um, led by Andrews out of Canada that has put out some pretty tremendous literature basically challenging the notion that low serotonin has anything to do with depression and actually even suggesting the opposite, that a high serotonin state is the way that the body actually expresses alarm. And it's absolutely not something that we should be seeking or going after. This notion that serotonin is some sort of happy chemical is something like a nursery school reductionistic, you know, sort of categorization. We want things to be simple and A causes B and nice and, you know, sort of um, neat. But that's not the way the brain works with like 82 billion <laughs> neuronal connections and at least 100 neuropeptides identified that there would be one happy chemical uh, is, is, you know, come on, right? And so hmm. I went in, into the literature to look for the evidence of what I had been taught, which is that depression is, is a serotonin, maybe sometimes also norepinephrine or maybe even dopamine imbalance. And what I found was six decades of literature that failed to support this conclusion. And again, I am not the first one sounding this alarm. There are researchers out of the National Institute for Mental Health, you know, here in America 
who have been saying, putting on record that the what's called the monoamine hypothesis of depression has to be abandoned because it doesn't hold water. There has never been adequate human data to support the assertion that low serotonin or a serotonin imbalance literally has anything to do with depression, which of course is, is pretty shocking given how well adopted that theory is. Hmm. One of the things I like reading in your book is the attention that you put on our well-being through our diet, but more importantly, through our gut microbiome. And how can you explain that to anybody that is listening, that the gut integrity actually plays a part in how you feel? Sure. So, you know, as I began to accept that this monoamine hypothesis was certainly much more limited than I had been led to believe in my training, I learned that there's been like 25 years of a totally new discipline that reflects, you know, what a lot of my colleagues and I are calling the new biology. And it's called psychoneuroimmunology. And it refers, sort of the way it sounds, to the fact that all of these seemingly disparate um, systems are connected in a greater system, right? So hormones, the endocrine system, gut, brain, these are all in communication and that the inflammatory response is potentially the language that is used to express imbalance or adaptation or efforts towards repair. And so it was really through that lens that I started to look at a literature that suggested that inflammation has a part in at least a subset of presentations of what we are calling depression uh, and that maybe even it's an adaptive response, that it's meaningful, purposeful, that the behaviors associated with depression, the symptoms are actually meant to reallocate energy, right? So you rest more, you avoid social contact, you stop having sex, you have changes in your appetite and your movement. Um, many people become hypervigilant in their cognition and mentation so that you could potentially solve some of the presenting issues and stressors and problems. So this idea that it's adaptive suggests that there aren't, you know, sort of mistakes happening here. But what was interesting was the way that researchers were creating and generating models of depression to study in the lab. One of the ways, at least, um, was that they would inject something called lipopolysaccharide, which is a component of a kind of gram-negative bacteria, kind of bacteria in the gut that doesn't really belong in your blood circulation, right? And so this would set off an inflammatory cascade, and then the animals would begin to act depressed, you know, whatever that means. And so through that literature, I began to appreciate something that's really rather intuitive, right? Because we all know that the gut responds to the brain because we've had diarrhea or butterflies or something before we have to give a toast at a wedding or before a big exam. Mm -hmm. And we know that our gut has that con connectivity to our thoughts. But I think what's less intuitive for us and what the literature really has supported is that the, the gut itself communicates directly to the brain and the body at large. And one of the ways that it does that is through the language of inflammation. Another way that it does that is through a big nerve called the vagus nerve that connects the gut and the brain. And then there are myriad other, you know, sort of roots of communication that are just being elucidated. But what's interesting is that 
bacteria specifically, but we also know there are, you know, virus and archaea and fungus in our gut. It's a whole complex ecology, but we're learning a lot about bacteria and we're learning that they literally synthesize these, you know, different components, specifically things like fatty acids that that have effects, anti-inflammatory effects on the brain, as far as we understand. But it's the bacteria themselves that are responsible for sort of sending a message about what's up in the external world to the brain. And so that's where it becomes really just not, you know, not a far leap to conclude that diet and nutrition is our greatest source of input, that this is no longer about, I don't need to tell you this, but this is no longer about, you know, calories and macronutrients and vitamins and minerals or whatever, that this is literally about essential information, you know, whether you want to call it epigenetic information, you know, that this is essential information that, that our diet is communicating to our entire nervous system through um, the responsivity and, you know, sort of integrity of our gut microbiome. It's cool. And you talk about in your book, the things that can throw that out of balance or actually throw it into a, a into disarray. And you talk about obviously anything that you consume or put onto your body, but you talk about the type of water that we drink and the type of foods that can cause inflammation and different medications and vaccines. So can you give us an overall sort of feeling or talk about these things that are so normal in our day-to-day living in, in Western society now that people just don't even think about, whether it's the water from their tap or, or any type of flu vaccine or whatever it may be, that ha- can have potential dramatic ramifications. Yeah. So I love the analogy of the bucket, right? That we all have this bucket of body burden and that it gets filled up at different rates and through different exposures, but that once it gets full to the brim, then there can be just that one final exposure. And maybe it is a pharmaceutical product like a vaccine, or maybe it's a toxic argument, you know, with your spouse, Hmm. or, you know, maybe it's eating that final piece of tuna sushi full of mercury, you know, for everyone that tipping point could be different. But that's when you present to the doctor, right? That's when you feel you've developed symptoms and you need help. But the fact is that this process has been probably unfolding over years. And the presenting symptoms are just sort of the final plea on the part of the body to pay attention to the fact that we are in no way designed, nor should we be, to accommodate the magnitude of toxic exposures and really the divorce from our native lifestyle that we have been enduring, right? So on a food level, on a stress level, on a light and movement level, on a relationship level, the unraveling of our communities. And then of course, you know, the 100,000 plus unstudied toxic chemicals that are industrial in nature that we are literally bathing in, in an unpredictable, you know, synergy of effects, this is not how we are designed to live. And so I used to think, oh, but the body's so adaptable, you know, we're, we could adapt in a generation. And now I have a more spiritual perspective, which is that we are not meant to be, you know, the superhuman race that outpaces the rest of the planet through the great gifts of science and technology. We are being reminded that we have separated ourselves from a web of life. 
And the way that we are being reminded is that we're getting sick. And so in my, you know, sort of effort to, I guess, provide people with the tools to dramatically redirect their experience and reclaim their health, I basically just summarized all of the ways in which we can send our body a signal of safety. And so that involves principally an anti-inflammatory diet, right? If you want to call it that, but it's really an ancestral diet. It involves daily stress response management. So call it meditation, call it prayer, whatever, you know, you want to label it. It involves detox. I've become rather notorious for, you know, um, my support of my mentor, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez's protocol involving the coffee enema. Mm -hmm. And it also very importantly, perhaps most importantly, involves mindset. And that's what I have come to understand is the greatest activator of all of the other ingredients of a healing lifestyle is quite simply the belief that you are not broken, (laughs) that you Mm -hmm. are not going to be subjected to an experience of chronic illness, and that things don't have to be linear and progressive in the way that, you know, the mechanical perspective of the universe would have us believe that there is all sorts of room for, you know, what is often referred to as like quantum phenomenon, that there's all sorts of room for radical shifts in your experience. And that's obviously why I spent a lot of my time and effort getting these stories out there of, you know, shedding disease labels and healing from things that should not even be possible to heal from, you know, based on conventional perspectives. But it requires this 360 degree effort to insulate your body, mind, and spirit in a new kind of safety signal. And so that's why all of these details matter. Everything you put into your mouth, everything you're exposed to, but doing, making those changes from a place of self-empowerment rather than a place of fear, because it doesn't work to be, you know, neurotically bound up in knots about every single thing you're encountering through skin or airway or GI tract. It doesn't work to approach that from a place of, you know, victimization, fear, and overwhelm. So that's why all these ingredients matter. So it's a very holistic approach, which is what I love and, and what I love about what you put into the book. And also for anyone to follow Dr. Kelly Brogan on your Instagram, because you are quite prolific on there. And every post that you put on there actually makes you stop and think. And, and that's what I love about it. And I want to dig a little bit deeper into something that uh, a lot of women take and was quite revealing for me when I read it in your book, and it's the contraceptive pill and what that can do to your mental state. Yes. It's so interesting because I've, you know, sort of imagined myself to be a feminist my whole life, you know, and and I used to be the kind of feminist that very much uh, passionately believed in birth control, believed in, you know, things like the HPV vaccine being a gift to all women, uh, believed in elective cesarean section, believed in parity and sort of an egalitarian mindset around male-female dynamics, but really on some level was the kind of feminist that thought, you know, well, I can do anything a man can do bleeding. You know, like it's like that kind of militant mentality was very much what informed my perspective. So I get it, you know, when women feel like, don't you dare touch my birth control, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. but 
I also have a lot of concern for the ways in which women are specifically targeted by the pharmaceutical industry. And we are targeted because we are made vulnerable by a social structure that refuses to acknowledge that we are women, right? Mm -hmm. That in fact, we are different. So when I began to research all of these common medications, I, you know, didn't play favorites. I went to statins and acid blockers and painkillers and antibiotics and vaccines. And of course, considering I personally took birth control for 12 years, literally almost nonstop, I was pretty interested in what I had been, you know, unconsented for. Because in the end, I'm very passionate about this tenet of informed consent. Listen, I believe everyone should be free to make the best decision for them that is most in harmony with their beliefs and and lifestyle and personal choices and preferences. But I am not into hiding published scientific literature from people because it is inconvenient for the pharmaceutical industry for that science to be given a microphone. And so what I learned about Mm -hmm. birth control is that in fact, it induces significant inflammation that it's been associated even as recently in a million person trial with up to an 80% increase of antidepressant prescribing. This was in teen girls, uh, that it drives hormone imbalance, which is probably not surprising, but in a very subtle and insidious way, including um, thyroid and male hormone imbalance that may account for the way that it affects libido and can put on weight and induce hair and skin changes. But I think perhaps its most subtle impact is really on personality. You know, I think that what can emerge is a sense of yourself as a flat, irritable, you know, person who's sort of disconnected. And you can assume that's just sort of who you are, especially if you take birth control for long periods of time. Uh, And so it's something that you yourself may not even be aware is operative. So this is below the radar of being diagnosed with a psychiatric illness, which of course, you know, whether it's the, the hormonal IUD or the patch or injectable or oral contraceptives can absolutely drive serious diagnoses ranging from bipolar disorder to suicidal depression. But even shy of that, there are these changes that now, if you understand the critical importance of your sex hormones to your brain functioning and literally to the balance of the rest of your body, endocrine system is so important, Mm -hmm. then you would never imagine that you'd be able to just shut down one arm of it and be who you are. It's not possible, right? So when you acknowledge that because Mm -hmm. you appreciate the sophisticated mechanisms at play here in all of these, the inter-system connectedness of our now, you know, expanded view of human physiology, then it makes sense that it's not possible to just pull one thread of the spider web. But if we can just keep it really concrete, you know, and the risk of sudden death through clots, for example, the cancer risk, the psychiatric risk, the inflammatory risk leading to cardiovascular um, side effects. I mean, these are all real things that should not be swept under the rug as uncommon or rare because as a former activist who actually went on to commit suicide because she never got over the grief of her daughter dying suddenly from the Nuva ring, you know, would tell me, you don't care about statistics if your child is that one, mm. right? It doesn't matter how rare it is. 
And so this is sort of where I find myself is, okay, so if we acknowledge this, then, then what are good alternatives? Well, healing hormones is a really good alternative. If you're taking birth control for something like endometriosis or polycystic ovarian syndrome, and if you're taking it for contraception, there is a way, you know, to, to know your body, be in your body, and also to work to mitigate that. I mean, I'm a personal fan of a gadget, you know, out of Canada called the Daisy. It's just one of, I'm sure, many options available that allow you to learn about your body so that you can make decisions that are right for you at a given time. So in talking about this, then, uh, one of the posts that you've you've recently done was that uh, a recent study confirms that antidepressants increase suicide risk. And obviously you've had a, a, a tough time in the US lately with uh, mass shootings and, and the whatnot. And you have said that one of the things that uh, the media doesn't really cover is that uh, certain people that have acted out these things uh, have been on these antidepressant tablets. So, um, or, or pharmaceuticals. Can you um, shed a little bit of light on that from your perspective, please? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have, um, we have a major epidemic in this country and it is, in my opinion, you know, a state of emergency. It's just that the focus has been somewhat misleading. And part of the reason that may be the case is because our media here is up to, you know, 70% pharmaceutically subsidized. So it's unrealistic uh, and and in surprising places, you know, media that you would even imagine is totally unbiased or even publicly funded has uh, pharmaceutical influence. So where you get your information, I mean, thank goodness for the democratization of information through the Internet, because where you get your information from is very critical Mm -hmm. uh, because there's a lot of effort. I think being put forth to distract from the reality that currently in America, we have one in five people on a psychotropic. The FDA itself acknowledges that these psychiatric medications, and it can range from stimulants to antidepressants and beyond, that they have a documented risk of impulsive violence towards self and others. So then it's just simply a matter of probability that there would be literally thousands of people at this given moment who are experiencing the adverse effects of these medications and who are going on to commit heinous acts of uh, violence, whether it's mass murder or even um, suicide. And it's actually, you know, so that we don't get mired in the, well, is correlation causation conversation, it's very important to know that there is literature that has looked at healthy people who have been never suicidal, not depressed, who have been prescribed these medications who, for various reasons, um, you know, ranging from, you know, their dog dying to a recent divorce, um, who do not meet even criteria for a major depressive diagnosis and who are not being treated for any type of sociopathic, you know, sort of tendencies who then go on to commit these acts. And our uh, best understanding now is that these people can become acutely intoxicated. Uh, It's called um, akathisia, and specifically it's called akathisia-induced impulsivity. They become acutely intoxicated perhaps because they have variants in their ability at the liver 
level uh, to metabolize these medications. And they, they basically are run into an altered state. You know, one of these people I have, uh, you know, sort of shared a video from him on my website called, uh, his name is David Carmichael. You know, this guy could be your uncle or your local school teacher. And because of work-related stress, he was prescribed Paxil. And he goes on to describe the circumstances leading to his development of delusional thoughts that ultimately resulted in, in the strangling of his 11-year-old son. He murdered his own son and mm. has has lived to tell the tale. And of course, he is now an activist around generating awareness around this now quite well-validated uh, scientific phenomenon. And of course, there's never just one ingredient, right? So there, there are multiple ingredients. You have access to weapons. You have you know, circumstances in the school setting that give rise to a need, a perceived need for psychiatric medications, many of which are psychosocial, economic. It's not in a vacuum. But this is, in my opinion, the true smoking gun, because I challenge anyone to find an example of mass violence. And it's not just contained to America. You know, the German wings pilot, there have been other examples um, of, of an act of impulsive mass violence that has not involved uh, psychiatric medications, typically they, that were recently initiated or recently tapered such that it was a, a withdrawal phenomenon that resulted in this kind of behavior, which is also well documented. So yeah, I mean, it's actually a public health issue now that we are not consenting people in a way that reflects what the literature is suggesting is a, a, a risk that we don't know how to predict, right? It's a risk we don't know how to stratify for. We don't know. Uh, and we're certainly not assessing or testing for who might develop this unexpected and very tragic adverse effect. Kelly, I just want to thank you for sharing your time and your wisdom with us today on the podcast. And we love you and we, we, we can't wait to... Keep up to date with all the work that you're doing. But I'd like to finish off with a question for you. And I know you take people on retreats and you do your protocols with um, different groups of people and take people on an adventure to really get to know themselves once again. And I'd love to ask you what your ingredients for a happy and successful recipe for life are that you love to share with the participants in your courses and for anybody that comes to see you and, and has a one-on-one -on -one with you. I'm so glad that there's another question. I was worried that we were going to end on, <laughs> on that horribly, horribly <laughs> harrowing note. The truth is, you know, I feel very passionately about getting information out so that people can make informed choices. But I feel even more passionately about how beautiful recovery can look and about the potential that every single person has to reclaim their health in ways perhaps they have never been told they could. And so that has become really where I've decided to focus most of my energy because I spent years getting really bogged down in the rabbit hole of everything that is wrong on this planet, right? And I think it's so beautiful mm -hmm. for us to really focus our energy on so much that is right and the light that is coming in. And so my rallying cry has really centered on a very simple premise, which is that self-care is all that is needed, right? So 
my sort of greater advocacy mm-hmm. is for us as a society to make room for the shadow, to make room for sadness and grief and pain and struggle, for there not to be an imperative to stop crying within two weeks after your beloved, you know, has died, <laughs> um, for there not to be this sense that something is wrong if you are going through and moving through a tight space. So that's sort of my overarching mission is to try to make room for embracing all of that darkness as a part and as a polarity to the lightness, because I believe that in sacrificing that, perhaps as the first culture in the history of mankind who has no appreciation for initiation, for the rites of passage, for an understanding that, growth and evolution come through struggle, right? We have sacrificed our access to joy. And, you know, joy to me is not happiness. I'm actually not big into promoting happiness. It's not really even a goal that I have for any of my patients or even my myself personally. But I, I do believe that joy is a human entitlement. And what characterizes it is a deep inner sense of expanded okayness, right? It's like this big open space of okayness and it's peace. And what, how it translates, it's almost like, you know, it's almost like you want to weep <laughs> just at the, the momentary experience of, of that kind of joy. And that is something that every single person I work with, whether in practice or through my online program, they come to touch that place and they touch it because they move through the dark night. You know, they move through this space that they never imagined they could handle. And of course, my job is simply to reflect that they can, but you don't have to set off on some big cosmic mission, you know, to sort of have your life experience and, re, you know, sort of reclaim your humanity. It's not about that. It's actually something that happens nearly automatically when you begin to clear and contain the vessel of your organism, right? So when you begin to devote Hmm. yourself to chopping wood and carrying water, you know, so to speak, when you begin to just commit at a high level to caring for yourself, things, massive things change, massive things. And it's all you have to do. You don't have to figure out anything else. You just have to be clear enough to perceive without reactivity what's coming your way and to be able to have the mindfulness and consciousness to appreciate the bigger design of what's happening. And believe it or not, that comes from caring about what you eat. It comes from detox. It comes from meditation and a daily practice of pause. And then it begins to come from the kind of support that you collect around you, which hopefully is reflecting to you your highest potential and is not reflecting to you concern, worry, or fear. That's one of the first things I encourage people to look at. Fantastic. Yeah, is the people in their lives who are dumping unprocessed and unmetabolized fear onto them in the form of concern and worry. So, you know, the, the first step is very simple. And that's why I'm so passionate about every adult giving themselves one month of their lives where they commit to an almost uncomfortable level of self-care every day, you know, for one month, because I've observed that that's enough to set the conditions for real and lasting change to emerge organically from that space. Hmm. 
You know, it, it brought it home because yesterday I was at a, I was at work actually, and there was a group of people around, and uh, people were talking about happiness, and they said, "What well, you know, what, what's your goal, Peter?" And I said, "Well, I try to live with with contentment," and mm-hmm. uh, and it was funny because people were like, "Well, that's a really boring word." <laughs> And I said, well, if you look at the definition of it, it means um, peaceful happiness yeah. and not reacting to to what's around you and just just accepting and understanding. And and uh, it, it was um, it was interesting because just listening to you talk about that 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 is, I guess, where uh, we feel most content yes. is we live in this 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 crazy world that you could call it, but the most beautiful world as well. And, yes. and being able to, to accept and understand it, as you said, there is the darkness and the light and, and to chop wood and uh, gather water as the Zen um, monks do. It's, um, it is, it is achievable and uh, we just need to have that space and that understanding that we are the light. We also are the darkness, and uh, that is fine. <laughs> that is good. I love that. Well, thank you once again, Kelly. This has been a wonderful podcast, and uh, until we meet again, keep smiling <laughs> or keep being content. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for your openness and receptivity. It's it's somewhat rare, as you probably know. You know, given my uh, my big opinions. <laughs> thank you, Kelly. The information. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.